Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. David Chow. Today, I have the distinct privilege uh, to speak and host a conversation with my friend and colleague, Dr. Russell Jung, Professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University. Hi there, Russell. I think you cut out there for a second. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, but I'm, yeah, I'm back. It goes in and out. Sorry, it's spotty. Yeah, that's been um, pretty much standard operating procedure in, during the pandemic with Zoom. You know, Russell, um, we're coming slowly coming out of the pandemic. At least that is the case in central New Jersey. But the last 15 months, um, it's been really a strain on many communities. And today, I really want to uh, understand the work you've been involved with as a scholar activist with respect to anti-Asian racism. Uh, tell us more about your website, Stop AAPI Hate, especially in the last six months. I think the last report I saw in May indicated that there are 6,600 reported incidents of anti-Asian hate. Uh, tell, us, tell us some of the patterns and trends and issues that you see arising within the Asian American community. Okay, thanks, David. Um, glad to be here. Um, yeah, so last year at the beginning of 2020, as we saw COVID-19 spreading from China, I was really concerned because I knew from history that Asians would be blamed and face racism and racist policies. I began to track um, news accounts of racism. In fact, I think I was going to Princeton yes. that, that exact time, like the That's end right. of February, right? And I was, right. Right before and I remember I was reading 500 news accounts of discrimination and I lost all that data. That's right, you mentioned and, that on the plane ride. You were, you were yeah. I remember it was so that. painful. And then at the same, okay, the side note, but at the same time, my shoulder was really hurting. So <laughs> that's why I remember it is that I lost all my data. Yeah. But that when I redid the work, we found there was a surge in racism, according to news accounts. So we thought we got to really track it firsthand. Um, I worked with two community nonprofits to um, to first advocate that the government should um, track the data. We think, or think it's government's responsibility, but um, the California state government didn't have the capacity, so we created a website and we were immediately flooded with hundreds of incidents. Mm -hmm. It turns out to be fortuitous that it was a community-based website because I think people were more trusting of us, more likely to report to us than they were to the government. Mm -hmm. So we received hundreds of incidents, and like you said, we received up to 6,600 incidents through the end of March. We'll probably hit 10,000 over the summer incidents. And that's just a fraction of what's really happening. You know, the Pew Research Center said 45% of Asian Americans experienced direct racism last year. I think we have a spotty Wi-Fi reception here. Can you hear me, Russell? Oops. There you are. Okay, now, now I'm back. When, yeah. when did I get cut off? You mentioned Pew said 45% of Asian Americans have uh, been on the receiving end of these incidents. Okay. So the Pew Research Center has found that 45% of Asian Americans have experienced direct racism. And when you read our incidents, um, 
it's really troubling. Um, it's actually really horrifying to see what Asian Americans are writing about in terms of their racism that they're experiencing. It's it's palpable how much hate and fear is being directed towards Asians, how Asians are being treated so subhumanly. How in a, at least half of our cases, people are telling us things like "Go back to China, you f and chink." Oftentimes, it's gang bullying where you have two or three people ganging up on one. Um, so, quick trends: um, women are attacked twice as much as men. I think youth and elderly are disproportionately impacted. Um, Clear cases of racial profiling, 60% of our respondents are non-Chinese. So even though China is being blamed as the source of COVID-19, non-Chinese are reporting more often, mostly those who look East Asian, Japanese, Vietnamese, um, Korean. And um, so it's just widespread, the racism. It's created a lot of fear. It's created what I am now saying is that this is an experience of collective racial trauma akin to Japanese American incarceration. An entire generation will say that their coming of age has been impacted by the pandemic and the spate of racism. So if half the community has already experienced it personally, one fifth of our respondents are showing signs of racial trauma. That's three symptoms of elevated long-term depression, anxiety, hypervigilance, and avoidance. So that number um, already shows that there's racial trauma. And then the rest of us are experiencing vicarious trauma because we could see our parents being attacked. We could know that if it happened to another person who's Asian, I also look Asian, I could be attacked too. That's the racialized collective aspect of the trauma we're experiencing. It's a group experience. Yeah, so let's, I want to dig into some of the the data, because you're the data person on this. So you're in San Francisco, I'm in Central Jersey. What about Asian Americans in the middle of the country? How, how much geographical differences are you seeing with respect to these incidents uh, affecting Asian Americans? Does geography matter? Or is it pretty much evenly evenly spread? Or how would you begin to account for that? Yeah, geography does matter. Clearly, um, we're getting more reports where we have concentrations of Asian Americans. Um, clearly, those who are living in dense urban areas like San Francisco, New York, report more than suburban areas like LA. It's because you know when you get into crowded conditions and people are more triggered, they're more likely to harass or attack people, um, like on subways, right? Um, but we do have reports across the nation. So I think it is pretty widespread. Again, the national surveys ask Asian Americans across the nation. So we have a self-selected sample. Our samples are mostly educated Asians who live on the coast who are more likely to um, perceive racism. Mm. But, but we, again, get reports from across the country and national studies have also shown that it's experience across the board. I think the more serious crimes it's clear there's more cases of physical assaults in urban dense communities where there's higher rates of crime. Interesting. And, and also you, unhoused mental illness. Right. Mentally right. ill. Would you, so how do you begin to distinguish between the power of social media that allows for uh, more proliferated sort of reports of incidents versus, so could, could the 
the claim that Asian Americans are experiencing heightened uh, anti-Asian racism in 2020, how much of that is in reality versus there's more power to report these things like the, the website and, and social media. So if, is it the case that Asian Americans really are experiencing more racism now than 20 years ago? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, for example, 8% of our cases are being coughed and spat upon. In 2019, I didn't hear of anybody being coughed on or spat upon by their fellow adult. But we have hundreds of cases, right? For me, that's a clear indicator. Racism has gone up. That type of subhuman treatment has been documented now. Mm. And if people were coughing and spitting at that rate in 2019, I think we would have heard about it, or at least I, as an Asian American studies scholar, would have at least heard anecdotally, you never get any stories about people spitting on you, right? But now it's every day someone gets spat upon. So for me, that's the <laughs> most you know, notable difference between 2019 and 2020 is like, do you know, did you know anybody who got spat upon in 2019? I know lots of people in 2020. I think we're going to have this dance with the uh, Wi-Fi. You're back. You were saying the difference between 2019 and 2020 was palpable. Yeah. Again, in 2019, I didn't hear of any stories of people getting spat upon as Asian Americans. And as an Asian American studies scholar, I think I would have been attuned to that. But now on a weekly basis, I know personally lots of cases of people who spat and coughed upon. And in our incident reporting, we see it again in 8% of our cases. So it's, it's occurring at higher rates than before. Now, earlier you mentioned that this summer you anticipate a continued increase in these incidents. Now, that, that may seem to go slightly again. Like, I'm just thinking... Many states are sort of returning to normal in central Jersey. You don't have to wear a mask inside a restaurant or a store anymore. You know, amusement parks are opening up. People are traveling more freely. Things seem to be returning to some type of normal, whatever that might mean. Do you, do you, I would imagine that would help diminish some of these incidents of anti-Asian hate, but you, you think that this trend will continue to increase. Is that right? I think it will continue. You would think that with a change of administration and coming out of the pandemic, there, there would be less racism. But we predicted last year that there'd be more. And that's because the quarantines and the government shutdowns actually suppressed the amount of racism. Because Asian Americans weren't going out, there was less likelihood that we would interact with others and face racisms. Now, as we come out of the pandemic, we have more interactions socially. And so therefore we face more interpersonal relations that are racist. Secondly, think about this. Over the year, you have fear of the pandemic, you have pent up scapegoating of Asians, you have the political rhetoric that exacerbated the racism. You have greater economic distress. So all those conditions continue to heighten people's fear and anger that then gets directed towards Asian. Plus you had over 600,000 deaths you have people grieving over their family members. They then take that, those strong feelings and direct it towards Asians. So it's, you know, when you think of it this way, you have all these emotions that get targeted and directed towards Asians. And then you have more opportunity to see Asians and get triggered by them. Then you're going to have more incidents. Yeah. Help us put this in perspective. You, you began to do that. You made this 
pretty strong um, reference to the the um, this this is akin to the type of Japanese incarceration uh, chapter in in sort of Asian American history. Say more about how you're situating the last you know 15 months within uh, the broader canvas of Asian American history. Um, in Asian American history, the yellow peril stereotype, the fear that Asians are outsiders and dangerous threats to the West, um, is particularly because we have hordes of people who are disease-ridden, or have hordes of people who will steal white workers' job. That fear has been invoked time and time again to then legitimate racism and interpersonal violence and to legitimate racist policies. We saw that in the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 and the disease of smallpox. We saw that when bubonic plague came in 1900 and Chinatowns were burned down or quarantined. We saw that in Japanese American incarceration where Japanese were seen as internal enemies to the US and incarcerated. We saw that in 9-11 when South Asians along with Muslims and Arab Americans faced Islamophobia, right? In times of war, in times of economic downturn and in times of pandemic, Asians are seen as outsiders and dangerous threats to the US. In the same way, when COVID-19 came and we had the economic downturn, the, great, the worst recession since the Great Depression, we had US-China animosity, a cold war, and we saw the pandemic that heightens the racism. Those were the conditions where the yellow peril gets invoked, we're seen as outside threats and therefore attacked as foreigners and not belonging and then facing institutionalized policies. Last year, the administration you know, suspended visas to Chinese researchers. He suspended migration visas so that families couldn't reunite. He cut refugee resettlement. He cut H-1B visas. All these policies institutionalize Asians as outside threats, a new yellow peril to be excluded because we're national security threats or health threats, public health threats. So you see this. You see this pattern, the yellow peril, Asians blamed, Asians attacked, Asians face racist policies. That's why we created Stop API Hate. We knew our history. We knew the yellow peril would be invoked yet again, and we had to get ready to um, address it. Before I um, pivot to your, your activism, you mentioned the racial trauma, this, this elevated and long-term sort of uh, sense of of uh, violence that, that have been inflicted upon Asian Americans. Uh, you and I spoke briefly earlier in the spring and you were telling me about the mental health issues for the AAPI community is a, a very, very significant issue. Tell me more about what you're hearing from various communities and how they're struggling with or dealing with mental health concerns. Um, well, again, the chilling fact I always say in my presentation is that Asian Americans who experience racism when asked, what's your greatest stressor during the pandemic? It's not the pandemic that's killed 600,000 people. It's racism. Think about this. Asian Americans are more fearful of other Americans' hate than a pandemic that's killed 600,000 people. That's how chilling the racism is. That's how widespread it is. That's how traumatizing it is. That's how fearful we are about our elderly. That's how deadly it's been, right? It's, we've had mass shootings. And so the racism is more scary because we could protect ourselves against COVID-19. We could take precautions. We can't protect ourselves from some random stranger attacking our grandparents. So I think the trauma is real. I know 
lots of family members tell their elderly to stay inside. I tell, I know a lot of elders who are not going out and that's having mental health and physical health impacts on them. So Asian Americans are the racial group least likely to send their kids back to the classroom. It's impacting our freedom of movement. We're being segregated because of this racism, right? We actually are facing de facto physical segregation because of racism. So I think it is, the racism has all these different types of adverse impacts on our mental health, on our communities, ethnic economies, and these institutionalized policies. And so that's why I'm arguing this is um, a racially traumatic historic event facing the Asian American community. And that's why we need to stand up. And that's why you see the community really mobilizing at the moment. This is the largest Asian American movement I've seen in history because of how, again, significant and how bad it's been. Let's talk about that. Um, I think after the Atlanta murders this spring, there was a lot of mobilization by Asian American community organizers and activists to um, show solidarity with the six Asian women who lost their lives in particular, uh, but also for other Asian Americans who have been suffering from uh, an increase in anti-Asian hate. At Princeton, we had a, a really significant turnout uh, in downtown Princeton for a Stop AAPI Hate rally. What do you see going on with Asian American activism in, in the last six months? And I know you yourself are a scholar activist. Can you tell us more about some of your, your activism as well? Um, this is the largest movement of Asian Americans. I think the community really has been galvanized. It's because it is a pan-Asian movement, right? The Atlanta shootings, as both Korean and Chinese were killed. It um, follows Black Lives Matter movement, where people are already aware of, what, of the racial injustices in the United States. And then what's the anti-Asian hate just sort of confirms the racial injustices in America. I think it's been um, significant because... Um, Asian American influencers, those who are um, elected officials or celebrities or sports athletes have really addressed the issue. So, um, and because we have Asian American um, scholar activists who are organizing around the issue, I think we have the data to document and to demonstrate the severity of the issue. So I think those factors have really led to a, a, a mass movement that's gotten a lot of attention, that's gotten the president to issue several executive orders that gotten Congress to pass hate crime legislation. So it is really significant. Um, and we're building on the wisdom of those who's experienced Islamophobia after 9-11. We're you know, learning from veterans of the Justice for Vincent Chin case in the 1980s. Um, so as a scholar activist, I'm applying social movement theories and understanding to our current condition to fight for change and to document um, what's happening. We knew we needed data and that's why we got the data. We knew we had to change the narrative and that's why we're really conscious about, well, what's the narrative that needs to be changed? We know that we have to mobilize masses and that's why we use social media and um, work with influencers. Social movement theory, you mentioned changing the narrative, changing the public discourse through social media. Continue talking about that. I want, I want to hear more about that. For me, the rates of racism against Asian Americans are, there are, there are two primary sources. One is that we're seen as perpetual foreigners. It's not the model minority stereotype. They're not 
pushing our grandmothers because grandma's so smart. It's because she's a foreigner, an outsider, and America treats foreigners really badly. We build laws against them. We detain their families. And apparently, if you're a foreigner, we could mistreat you, right? And that's how America treats foreigners. We're seen as outsiders either to the country or to a neighborhood. And that's why we're getting attacked. If we don't speak English, you're seen as an outsider who doesn't belong. And so that perpetual foreigner stereotype really needs to, um, that insider-outsider binary that how Asians are racialized, the racialization that we're perpetual foreigners, outsiders needs to be dismantled and disrupted. And so for me, that's part of the flipping of the narrative. It's how do we um, reconceive who belongs to America? So that's one way to address the racism. Secondly, the major source of the problem is US-China relations, right? As China gets bashed, Chinese in America get bashed. If China is vilified, Chinese are vilified. People can't distinguish between a country and its government policies and the people and its culture. So they conflate everything. So if China becomes the boogeyman, Asian Americans face the backlash, right? And that's what we're seeing. COVID-19, the Republican Party strategically made the decision to let's attack China because that works, that riles up American nationalism. It's easy to scapegoat and blame the out group. Let's make China the out group. And therefore, Chinese Americans and Asian Americans become the out group. And that's what's been happening. So we have to address a perpetual foreigner stereotype. We have to improve US-China relations if we want to improve the um, racial status of Asian Americans. So then, knowing that's part of the narrative, the deeply embedded um, narratives about race, that's what we got to change. At the same time, there's policies that we could influence and um, ways to address the narrative through ethnic studies, education, through expanding civil rights protections, through rethinking um, how do we hold perpetrators accountable. Are you seeing minds change? Do you, are there stories of resilience and resistance from within Asian American communities that you can share with me? or with uh, allies of Asian Americans that you can share with me. It's been such a, a scary and somewhat depressing time. I remember when we were, when I was hosting my Asian American theology conference in April, it was soon after Easter. And with, with uh, winter transitioning to spring, we, some of the organizers felt hopeful just because of the Easter season, because of spring, because we had a space where we could talk and address some of these issues of shared concern. Um, ha have you come across communities doing interesting coalitional justice work that have um, st stories you can share with us? Oh, there's always been the coalition of solidarity work, you know, like the Asian American Collaborative have done Asian and Black rallies, right? And they have the um, marches in Chicago. Um, but here's the Christian um, response that I think is really helpful for the Stop a API hate movement. We call a lot for restorative justice, that we don't want to incarcerate people for being racist, but we do want to hold them accountable and then teach perpetrators empathy. We also want to heal the Asian American community who has been traumatized. So here's my big picture. Hurt people hurt others, abused people abused others. If Asian Americans experience racism, we learn to be racist and learn to be anti-white. We learn to be anti-Black. We then, if when we get triggered and we go into fight or flight mode, 
If we fight back and arm ourselves, or if we flee and just avoid the problem, we perpetuate that cycle of violence. We perpetuate that cycle of racism, right? It's just a matter of time where Asian Americans, we become oppressors, we become exploiters, we become racist. So how do we stop this cycle of violence? How do we stop this cycle of racism that Asian Americans are now really being impacted by? And this is where redemption and restorative justice and healing all come together. Restorative justice holds the perpetrators accountable, but doesn't punish them or shame them with jail time, right? And it heals the, the targeted victims because it gives them a chance to share the harm that they've experienced and then to heal from it and then see their perpetrators in empathetic ways that both see each side's more humanly. Got it? That's the idea of restorative justice. That's the notion of Christian restoration that um, we don't take vengeance, but we see the humanity. We love our enemy. We turn the other cheek. We ourselves then get healed, right, as targeted people, but then the healed become the healers. This is a redemptive Christian part that I see is that Asian Americans now, even though we're victimized, even though we have the status of outsiders, we have the position now to be the racial healers for America. On the outside, we have the position to see what's broken, to call for a prophetic change, and then help, you know, um, invoke that change. So for me, I think that's my, even my understanding is that I, as I too have dealt with all the pain of this racism, I am going through individual healing so that eventually I hope I can heal others. Hmm. And in the same way, I think the Asian American church could be poised to be racial healers for America overall. It's totally redemptive. So I have this great story of restorative justice and a Christian model of redemption. Bawi Kung is a Chin refugee, uh, refugee from the Chin state of Burma. He was shopping with his two kids in Midland, Texas, and he was attacked. The assailant said he was Chinese and brought the coronavirus. So he was slashed and his kids were also slashed. That was months ago so that even today, his kids can't sleep and he's hypervigilant. Despite being victims of physical crime and assault, despite being slashed, despite the racial trauma they're still experiencing, he forgives his perpetrator. He says he prays nightly for his assailant, right? Yet he doesn't condone the racism. He says we shouldn't have racism against Asian Americans. So he is both and, both calling out the sin of racism, yet also forgiving the perpetrator. And for me, that's the model of restorative justice that we need to challenge a system that creates racist individuals, but also to love individuals and to be empathetic towards perpetrators. Jeremy Lin also models that, um, that restorative justice model. He gets called names like coronavirus on the court. He doesn't shame them or call them out, but he does hold you know, the nation and the NBA to, an, to account for its racism, right? So you acknowledge what's wrong, but you learn to forgive and you yourself then become healed for the process. That's what I wanna see, perpetrators held accountable, the system called to account, we who are victims to be healed and then we could heal others. So that's the great possibility for Asian American Christians at the moment. We're placed on the outside. We're seen as perpetual foreigners. That's a great place to be because who wants to belong to this racist, broken society? 
who wants to be, you know, we're called to be not conformed to the world. So let's take our identity as resident aliens, as foreigners and strangers to this land and say, yeah, we have a different citizenship. Let's then bring kingdom of God to earth and say, there's a better way. There's a healed way. And then let's demonstrate it and embody those values of Christian healing and redemption. Thank you yeah. for listening to my sermon, David. <laughs> in a, in my congregation of one, that you're the only one who have to listen to. We'll take well, offering now. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Preach it, Russell. Preach it. And a shout out to Jeremy Lynn. If Jeremy Lynn is hearing this podcast, I want to invite you to, uh, I want to host a conversation with you. Maybe Russell can join in and we can talk about um, what Jeremy's uh, gone through within the NBA. And I'm really sad that the NBA didn't take them back. Um, Russell, what I appreciate about you is you are trained formally as a sociologist in kind of empirical social scientific description of human society. But every time I've invited you to speak at Princeton Seminary, you've taken up the challenge to reflect theologically upon Asian Americans and Asian American Christians, which I appreciate so much. And this is your, your meditation about restorative justice and the power of the gospel to hold accountable while also forgiving is, is tremendous. Um, I think we need to hear more of that. I think we need to hear more of that. I think um, I am partnering with uh, Asian American pastors. I'm sitting in on some of their, uh, their conversations to understand how they're processing issues of race, issues of justice, issues of solidarity with other racial minorities. And um, I'll be honest, I'm, I am, I think a lot of Asian American congregations that really didn't have the vocabulary of race or justice in recent years are, are now using that language. Do you see a shift amongst Asian American congregations of, of broad stripes? Are they how do you see Asian American congregations responding to the last year? Are most engaging constructively with it? Are, are, are most um, kind of tuning it out? How, how, what's your sense? What's your sense of how Asian American Christians and churches responding uh, in the last year to, to, to these social issues? Yeah, I, um, given my perspective, so I give a lot of church talks, right? So I don't know, from my perspective, my denomination has taken it on. Um, I get invited to denominational groupings to talk about it. So maybe it's just me and I have this weird vantage point. I assume people are grieving over the Atlanta shooting, so churches do talk about it, um, at least praying for the situation, right? It's If I just assume if pastors are going to be good pastors, this is the issue that their members are going through. They're going through collective trauma. They're afraid for their elders. They're concerned about their kids. If they're not talking about it, what kind of pastors are, what, what are they pastoring their members about? You know, like, how can you avoid it? So, well, that's my perspective. So I, I've, from my vantage point, I think the Asian American community is taking it on. The church community is also taking it on. Um, again, the Asian American Christian Collaborative is just like the largest church movement I've seen that's come together ecumenically, right? And that's sort of unusual, right? For, I've never seen that before. So um, I think uh, 
the strength of the Asian American Christian Collaborative and how much momentum they got demonstrates that the church is taking it on. The fact that yet the younger generation see social justice as a key part of their faith, churches then have to respond to at least their demographic, their members, knowing that their members are traumatized, they should take it on. So I think there's lots of reasons for the Asian American churches to address the issue, not because it's a social justice issue, but it's a pastoral issue that their members are dealing with. Interesting. So here, here's the final topic for our conversation. Um, for the Asian American pastors listening to this conversation, what are some practical things that Asian American pastors can be, be more intentional about in this time of uh, social isolation and racial trauma? When you get invited into those Asian American Christian spaces, what are some of the things that you're telling people? First of all, you know, I talked about how we are now um, facing racism because we're seen as perpetual foreigners. I reappropriate that term and say, it's good to be a foreigner, that we have to reclaim that foreigner status. You know, just as before in the Black is Beautiful movement of the Black Power movement, they reappropriated a stereotype and made it their strength. Mm -hmm. God's power is perfected in our weakness. So if our weakness is our lowly status as perpetual foreigners, God's power and grace is sufficient that we claim that weakness because then we could see God's goodness and God's power even more. And as we're foreigners and we're seeing, we could see what's broken about America again and say, I don't want to be part of this Babylon that oppresses people. And I'm going to change the society so that it doesn't oppress people. That's, that's our witness. That's, that's the advantage of being on the outside. You could also learn to say, um, Again, as we get healed, then we can become the healers of America. That's a great opportunity. And it's, it's God's gift to us that our thorns in the flesh, our earthen, earthly vessels, you know, that passage, our weakness becomes through our healing of that, God could redeem not only us, but also the broader society, right? So that's how I see us being used at the moment. We're victims of racism, acknowledge it, heal from it, and then heal other people who are also experiencing racism. What a great opportunity to be God's witnesses to a broken society. Well, Russell, on that note of being faithful witnesses uh, to God's kingdom, I just wanna thank you for spending an afternoon and chatting with me about these important matters. And I wanna thank you for your scholar activism. Thanks, David. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.